organized. We can't go home. We have to continue. This is the role of movement building and grassroots organizing is that's year round. And so we have to keep recruiting new people into the struggle and keeping them engaged. A lot of folks don't want to do that. People just want to mobilize folks. And then what is the fight ahead of us, right? We didn't get to Trumpism overnight. And so we're not going to get out of it overnight. There's no shortcuts to this. But what is the kind of, you know, I'll, I'll borrow from a few people, including Reverend Barber, what's the kind of reconstruction of the democracy and the economy and the society we need in the midst of COVID and Trumpism? And so what do those fights look like? And how do we wage those fights and campaigns in a way that builds power? How do we think about the opposition and the rules of the game? Hi, this is Stephen Pitts, the host of Black Work Talk, an organizing upgrade podcast. Here, we take a look at efforts around the country to build the collective power of Black workers. Last episode, we had a great conversation with Bill Fletcher. We started talking about the election, but then pivoted to a wide-ranging discussion about topics such as the nature of the Trump base, the role of education in building a progressive movement, and the role of class and capitalism in Black politics. If you have not heard it, please check it out. Since that conversation, we are more certain that Joe Biden will be the next president, and we have seen the desperate measures Trump will take to hold on to power. We know the transition will be bumpy, but we will get to January 20th, when Trump will be gone and the Biden-Harris administration will be sworn in. While the constraints they face and the opportunities before them will be partially determined by the outcome of the Senate runoffs in Georgia, the central tasks of our work, the work of radically transforming our country, are independent of the parameters impacting the Democratic Party. We need to build a governing majority driven by a desire to transform our country around a radical vision of deep democracy in all spheres of our lives, consistently elevating and implementing anti-racist and anti-sexist values, and ensuring that working people have genuine control over their lives. And I believe that Black workers will play a key role in this transformation. Here at Black Work Talk, we are committed to developing a vibrant conversation bringing you the key voices building Black worker power in the workplace and in the neighborhood. To do this, we need your help. Bringing you the best guests and the most timely discussions takes resources. We depend upon people power to grow. So please go to Patreon to make a financial contribution, large or small, and become part of our community to support the work we do here at Black Work Talk. Today, my guest is Dorian Warren. I've known Dorian for over 15 years, as we have worked in different spaces to ensure that economic justice movements don't ignore the interests of Black workers, while simultaneously making sure that struggles for Black freedom include the battle to radically transform our political economy. We also share Southside Chicago connections as we grew up around the block from each other. But I do need to remind myself that we were a generation apart. Doran is the president of Community Change, the co-chair of the Economic Security Project, and co-host of a new podcast with Melissa Harris-Perry called System Check. A progressive scholar, organizer, and media personality, he has worked to advance racial, economic, and social justice for over two decades. We had a wide-ranging conversation about our recent elections, the tasks for the left as we build a progressive governing majority, and the relationship between Black workers and Black freedom. I enjoyed the conversation. I think you will as well. So, Doreen, thanks for being on this show. You're my sec second guest. I truly appreciate you being here, man. Thanks a lot. It is an honor and a pleasure, especially to come after the great Bill Fletcher and to be talking to you, Stephen. So thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It's no problem, man. You, you have a lot of titles. I won't go through all your, your titles. Um, I guess the most important thing, well, the, the second most important thing is your president of community change. But the most important title is New Daddy. <laughs> so man, congratulations, man, on that. Thank um, you. <laughs> what's your daughter's name again? It's Micah Sophia. 
And how old is she? Uh, she is six weeks as of this week. And um, you can probably hear it in my voice. I'm not getting much sleep, but it is so joyful to have new life in what has been just a hell of a year of 2020. So um, I'm that is the most important. Yes, my identity changed. I am now a parent and a father and I am all in. <laughs> we, we have a fairly stable situation at the federal level. It's kind of clear that Biden is going to be president and Harris be VP. Uh, it's clear we have a weaker Democratic majority in the House. What's not a settled question is the Senate, clearly, because of the runoffs mm -hmm. in, in Georgia. But I don't want to get into this election stuff at that level. What do you see being some bright lights kind of at the local level, some of the mm -hmm. results? I mean, beyond just all the voter turnout stuff. I mean, the actual elections mm -hmm. locally. Any bright lights you might want to bring to the service in that? Yeah, but I do have to <laughs> I do have to start with a little rant <laughs> around the election because I think it helps to frame the local the local bright spot. So let me say this and, and say it very provocatively and intentionally. The Democratic Party is a hollow entity. I'm gonna say that again. The Democratic Party is a hollow entity. And and but what I mean by that is um, you know, if you go back a decade to twenty ten. And that was the first midterm of the Obama presidency. And remember, he said after losing horribly in terms of um, Congress as well as state houses that he got shellacked. And so the party has had 10 years to rebuild and it has failed to do so. And all you have to do is look at um, not one state house was flipped, for instance, or state legislature was flipped in this election cycle. So in place of parties and the hollowed out, hollowed out nature of the party are independent, progressive, grassroots organizations, particularly in Black communities, that have been doing the slow, invisible work over the last decade of recruiting new people, of expanding their base, and engaging people in important fights around the issues in their lives, including elections, but not exclusively elections. And so I like to think about some of the, if you look at, say, Wisconsin or Minnesota or Michigan or, of course, Arizona and especially Georgia, and all eyes are on Georgia right now, um, those are political earthquake stories, especially if it, as I think about Georgia. You, no one predicted <laughs> Georgia was going to go blue. And to tell that story, you have to understand, well, what's the grassroots infrastructure there? What have people been doing for 10 years? And um, it started with, you know, New Georgia Project and some other entities and organizations in the early part of the last decade that started during the grassroots organizing. And I mentioned Georgia in particular because it reminds me, Stephen, of California. And there's a very similar California story over several decades. If you go back to California in the 60s and, and 70s, that was Nixon territory. That was Reagan territory. And by the 90s, you get Pete Wilson, anti-affirmative action, anti-immigrant. And some, you know, people thought, there was no way California could be turned, but it was actually grassroots organizing and movement work. Um, and the labor movement's a big part of the story in California in particular, um, if you look at LA or, or in Oakland in the Bay Area, that really drove that transformation of that state over a decade and a half or so. And so I like, the, I like to think of the bright spots as places where there is now independent progressive grassroots power, particularly rooted in black communities. Um, and um, just to say one last point on this, there were some other bright spots in terms of ballot initiatives. Um, I know California, you're, you're still <laughs> delving into what happened. But in Arizona, there was an income tax increase um, on, on the wealthiest to help fund education. In Florida, there was a minimum wage win. Uh, over 60% of voters voted for a $15 an hour minimum wage, even though that state went red. There were lots of prosecutor races. I'm thinking um, Southern California, for instance, and some other places of, of, of electing progressive prosecutors that will behave differently and write new rules, particularly around policing and incarceration in black communities. So there are lots of bright spots. It's funny you mentioned California. Um... I guess my slight pushback, Dorian, and the reason I raised the issue of kind of bright spots away from the mobilizations piece mm. is that while we often lead with California, we lost the, the issue around trying to reform Prop 13. Mm -hmm. We lost the issue around the question of worker protection for the Uber drivers. We lost the initiative to try to change um, Prop 209 for affirmative action. And so to me, this is important to talk not just about, I'll call it the electoral mobilization, but how do you how do you dig, dig deep deep roots mm -hmm. in civil society, and almost I mean I, I, as you know I come out of the I'm a kid of, Chicago, of the Daily Machine, 
where the idea is simply, if it moves, we vote for it and we lock down small thing like dog catcher. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me sometimes what happens is that we get focused on kind of the, the big stuff. And it may be at the level of the, the federal level, it may be other sort of big issues where we don't dig those deep roots. So we see, quote unquote, contradictory results. Yes. And so that's why I raised the issue of, yes. of kind of, you talked about you know, the, 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 the Lacey race in, in, in LA, you talked about other races. To me, the idea of where we see the kind of victories at the local level, we're actually building not just electoral machines, but kind of called a community of life machines that you can, on, on a constant basis, bring people in and, and win things on a systemic level. Um, uh, you know, you just, your framing of that is actually really helpful. I, I like the, the framing of contradictory results. That's actually a really helpful framework to think about how to make sense for those that want to make sense of this election cycle in particular. And yes, you know, having grown up in Chicago too, I'm all about political machines. I think we we kind of threw out the baby with the bathwater there in terms of thinking about what is the role of, of political machines, particularly at the local level, for poor and working class folk, right? In terms of actually delivering services um, and providing a basic floor for people to be able to have opportunity and thrive um, much more than survive. So I, I am there with you. There. But but the contradictory results, I think, is the right way to frame what, what we've witnessed in the last month. Yeah. Um, also, to me, it was a partial frustration. As you know, I have a thousand pet peeves. I'm going to go through a thousand <laughs> on this show, at least. But, you know, a lot of times the discussion over the weaknesses of the, of the Dems allows us to stay within their bailiwick, how they should behave different, how they should behave better. And to me, that's the wrong starting point. Mm-hmm. To me, the starting point is how do you build a progressive governing majority? And in that context, the, the Dem Party is a tool for that, but it's not the end game. And, and so if you think about not how can, can Biden be better, but how do we actually build a, a progressive governing majority? Mm-hmm. What might you think would be three, two or three important tasks for the left to undertake during 2021? to achieve the, that, the building that political block? I would say, boy, I could think of eight things. Okay, but I'll try to keep it at three. I would say one, uh, <laughs> this won't surprise you, organize. We, no, you can't go home. Uh, we have to continue. This is the role of movement building and grassroots organizing is we, that's year round. And so we have to keep recruiting new people into the struggle and keeping them engaged. Um, a lot of folks don't want to do that. People just want to mobilize folks, right, around an election, but they don't want to do the grassroots organizing that takes year-round, or frankly, the worker organizing that's year-round, um, right? So how do we organize in this next period? And the basic lesson of organizing always is you start where people are, you make room for the awakening for folks, right? None of us are born woke. Let's just talk about that for a second. So how do you bring people in to organization? Um, what's, what does political education look like? I, I remember you and Bill Fletcher talked about this last week. And then how do you engage people in a fight? So this is point number two. So one is organized. Two is what is the fight ahead of us, right? We didn't get to Trumpism overnight. And so we're not going to get out of it overnight. There are no shortcuts to this. But what is the kind of, you know, I'll, I'll borrow from a few people, including Reverend Barber. What's the kind of reconstruction of the democracy and the economy and the society we need in the midst of COVID and Trumpism? And so what do those fights look like? And how do we wage those fights and campaigns in a way that builds power, that builds power for the long term? Because all of this for me starts with, you know, there's organizing, then there's power at the, at the, at the, at the base of what, what's ahead of us in terms of crafting a progressive majority. And then I think the third thing I would say is um, how do we think about the opposition and the rules of the game? And what do I mean by that? Um, we are fighting on terrain that has always been hostile to us, and it was designed to be hostile to workers, to black folk, to women, to women of color. And so if you don't look at the rules of the game, uh, winner-take-all elections, electoral college, the Senate, redistricting, a whole bunch of states are about to engage in redistricting after the census this year and the election this year. And, you know, frankly, there's good, our side is going to be disadvantaged for yet another decade because of those rules of the game. So how do we think about changing the rules of the game that so that we're not disadvantaged? And then what are the offensive plays 
to go after our opposition, to go after the right, right? How do we think about weakening the bedrocks of the rights governing majority, much like they do with us all the time? Just think Wisconsin 2011, Scott Walker was the first thing he did, attack uh, his opponents, public sector unions, right? That's a structural attack on a form of power for the Democratic Party. And so what is our version of that, right? Is it um, thinking strategically about the NRA or evangelicals or the business community? Um, so what, what are those fights look like that really take on the organizational and ideological bases of the right? He's stuck on four or five. No, but we're not counting, okay? But we, one thing you did mention, though, was the the idea of of our vision for democracy and reconstruction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. To me, that discussion mm -hmm. is not well developed mm. um, because I think that if we can talk a lot about democracy, um, but it means different things to different people. Because um, some, some people, freedom mm -hmm. means I should, not, I should not be able to wear a mask. It's the whole idea of what it means to have democracy is, 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 is not a, a clear question. Mm -hmm. And also what it means to have a third reconstruction. I mean, clearly this sounds phenomenal because we need to have a new society. And we, the second one was, first one was okay, but stilted. Second was better, but stilted. But I think the content of these things are important to explore. And I want to raise the question of, from the point of view of Black workers, mm -hmm. what does it mean to have a more democratic society and a third reconstruction? Linked to that from the point of view of a different sort of political economy, what does it mean exactly? Because it's important to know what we're fighting for. I use the example probably too often. I was able to to go to a speech given by Mil Cabral back in the 70s. Mm. He was the, lead, the, the leader of the liberation forces in Guinea-Bissau in Africa. And um, he said it's important to, to have soldiers, but they must know where to shoot the guns, where to shoot. Mm. And the last thing is about where to shoot talks about wh what we're trying to do, what we're trying to build. So can you talk a bit about this notion of the content of democracy, the content of the third reconstruction from the vantage point of black workers? Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> that's a light question, Stephen. Uh, okay. Well, I mean, next, next time I ask for three, two, three things, say two things and get out of the way. Okay. <laughs> oh, this is my punishment. I mean, call payback. Call I, I, payback, I, man. Fair point. Touche. Touche. I mean, I would, I would go back to, to the classic black reconstruction by W.B. Du Bois written in 1935. By the way, since all eyes are on Georgia, he was writing that, um, when he was in Atlanta, Georgia. <laughs> and, are you a complex? Cool. Okay. In the in the in the deep south, right um, under Jim Crow, after the end of the first Reconstruction, right. So he's 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 thinking about the questions um, of the the successes and the failures of the effort to quote reconstruct the democracy, because when we say reconstruction, that's really what it was about. There was a it was about reconstructing the democracy, meaning um, again to go back to one of our themes here, what does it mean from the standpoint of black workers to have freedom and power? And a democracy requires, right, uh, and, and ideal notions of democracy, because you asked the vision question, it means that the people decide, <laughs> and it's Barris, in the, right, in the most fundamental way. It also means, um, in terms of electoral democracy, that there are losers and winners, but you always need losers. And it means you always have the right to oppose, Right. There's always the right to oppose and not be punished because otherwise that's an authoritarian one party state. And so um, but democracy and the rules of democracy have always shaped what we might call the economy or our system of racial capitalism. You cannot separate those two things. It's not like the, the market is over here and like the political system is all the way on the other side. The political system and the rules of democracy shape the rules of the market and our economy. And so for Du Bois in 1935 and thinking about, okay, it was clear under racialized slavery what the rules were. The rules were exclusion and bondage. Those were the rules of the democracy, <laughs> right? So that the rules were fundamental to the economic system of, of a plantation economy based on enslaved labor. So then there is a moment of freedom. Right, a brief moment, and he has this great passage. Um, I don't know if it's in Black Reconstruction. I think it is, where he basically says, you know, the, the black slave, you know, walked into the sun or something like that, right, for a brief moment, a brief day of freedom, and then walked back into darkness. Right, it was forced back into darkness, and so the vision of democracy. There's always been a radical democratic vision rooted in black workers, 
because that was that's the foundation of this country, right? Is the unfreedom of black workers, of free labor, right? For white plantation oligarchs. And so democracy always has to be part of the terrain on which we struggle, but it can't just be that. And so to get to your second question about the third reconstruction, um, I, I think about it as, um, again, historically, if you think about the first reconstruction, which was a moment of freedom for black, formerly enslaved black folk and black workers, particularly. And it also met for the first time, the other benefits of citizenship, meaning political representation, but more important, most importantly, I would say is the establishment of public goods that people needed to survive, whether it's the first time, right? The, the first public schools built in the South were doing reconstruction. And of course that was under, <laughs> uh, that, that was under a situation where you had federal troops enforcing, right? Newly won rights for black workers. But by the way, uh, poor white folks also won from reconstruction, right? And the liberation of black people because they got public schools for the first time as well. Um, just a little side point, but there were all these public goods, right? Access to public education, um, you know, basically basic necessities like infrastructure and clean water and transportation roads and those kind of things, right? So that was all part of the first reconstruction. Of course, we know it ended um, in the 1880s, 1890s, and we saw the rise of Jim Crow, which um, in some ways you can think of it as authoritarianism in the South, for a hundred years, right? One party rule, one party racial rule, um, with a focus on forcing black workers back into a situation of unfreedom for a hundred years. Um, and then we had a, a second reconstruction that many scholars call the long civil rights period, right? From roughly the early fifties into the late sixties. And again, same thing, like Black folks, for the first time, really got the right to vote in the South. So that's, I would, I actually marked the beginning of American democracy in 1965, by the way. I actually think we're a very young democracy um, by any given standard. Um, so for the first time, citizenship rights, um, actual ability to access some of those public goods. But those were also hard fights that, again, required the federal, government, the federal government and federal government intervention in the South to enforce those new rights. So that's, the, that's all the second reconstruction. And so now I do think we're already in a period of a third reconstruction. And I do think there is lots of imagining collectively yet to do on what is the North Star vision for where we want to be by, say, 2030. Like, where do we want to be by the end of the decade? And what does that look like, particularly for black workers? What does freedom look like for black workers by 2030? And then what's the strategy from here to there that centers, by the way, black workers and black people um, in this broader strategy to reconstruct our democracy and re re frankly, reconstruct the system of um, racial capitalism? You know, when I think about issue of democracy, I, I think it's more than just issue of voting. That's kind of it's kind of the, the yes. cornerstone, by the way. But to me, it's it's looking at all spheres of our lives, be it education, be it housing, be it healthcare, be it public safety, neighborhoods, and how do you make sure that we have called popular input mm -hmm. in the construction of those things, and making sure that along with the popular input, we serve people well. And so sometimes it means that at every little sphere of life, we have democratic in the voting process, Democrat input to choose education, to choose yes. healthcare, to housing. But also means sometimes that we can't allow things being delivered on an individual basis. We need, as you said, public goods. Mm -hmm. And so there's two different dimensions of the, of the, the democratic impulse I'm talking about. One is, is our ability to actually have input, but yes. also having a better life. Because you can raise the question of, can yes. someone really have a democratic process we have to have two jobs or three jobs. We are trying to juggle with schooling and homeschooling kids and education and, and jobs and so forth. So I think both of these are important, both mm. in every sphere of life, having popular input and making sure the outcomes of those spheres are the ones that actually elevate people's quality of, of life itself. Um, and from the point of view of black workers, it's really raising the viewpoints and issues, concerns of black workers, allowing them to express those things in all those spheres. So we talk about education in East Oakland, that is largely a, a, a area of, of poor blacks, not exclusively though. 
how they make sure that their interests are expressed, how they organize to do so. And we have groups, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, parent voices here in Oakland that can mm-hmm. do that, right? And, and so to me, that's why I think about democracy and, and trying to look at transforming our societies a bit. One last thing before we go on to the, the, the final topic. Um, to me, it was not talked a lot about when we discuss having this governing majority that's progressive mm. and the need to alter the rules of the game is how do we get people who today would vote against us to vote for us? Mm. Um, because we can't simply say on this podcast, there'll be no electoral college. We, we can't just stay on this podcast that all of a sudden we're going to have the votes of someone in California to be equal to someone's votes in, in Wyoming. And so the, 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 the delicate kind of mm-hmm. complicated issue is how do you advance a progressive agenda that develops majoritarian support? Mm-hmm. I'm not clear that's all we looked at in the broader U.S. context. Thoughts on that? Oh, <laughs> What, what is what is with these very easy like questions, Doctor Pence? Uh, you've been up. You've been up. It's noontime where you are, man. You've been up a long time. You may be active. I mean, um, you know, there's a question of like I'm, I'm actually don't know. So let me just say, like I, I'm I'm the kind of um, person, whether organizer or scholar or just on <laughs> being on the left. Like I, I I always stay curious, and I and I. I actually um, think in hypotheses <laughs> to be tested, and so I, I, I'm not going to say I have the answer. But here's 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 a here's a problem I'm grappling with. Um, is it a necessity for a majority of people to agree with us on the big issues, to both win transformative policy and to enforce it? So, for instance, I'm thinking I can't I can't find a poll in the early 60s, where there was ever majority white support for the Civil Rights Act in 1964. I can't find a poll where there was ever majority white support, for instance, for the 65 Voting Rights Act that actually made us a democracy. But there, so there were some other dynamics and factors at play, right? There was movement strategy that was part disruptive, very strategic. Um, there was a narrative strategy. There was an organizing strategy. There was a mobilizing strategy that forced the issues on the agenda and and demanded that policymakers respond. And then for a period of time, um, there was enforcement. And, and especially when you talk about black work and black workers, um, you know well as more than anybody, it's one thing to win a contract. It's one thing to win a minimum wage increase. It's a very different thing to enforce it. And what, what does enforcement look like, especially from the, from the folks most directly in, impacted? So, so I, I do struggle with like, what are the necessary ingredients for winning a progressive majority or a governing majority? Um, I do struggle with that question. And then I do think there's a second question around, well, once you actually win and deliver for folks and actually tangibly change their lives through changing the rules or changing policies, how do you enforce it? And that means it can't just be um, good ideas or goodwill and you hope for enforcement, you actually have to keep people engaged, right, to enforce it. So that's a that's one way I come to the question. The other... Um, the other, the other thing your question made me think about, you know, there's a, an old saying in union organizing that the boss is always the best organizer, <laughs> right? Um, and so we might imagine, right, in our system, the system is often the best organizer. And that leads to a deeper question, actually, of, well, if the system causes so much harm, suffering, exploitation, and death, and death, especially in this moment of a global pandemic, why isn't there more mass uprising? Like, why isn't there more rebellion? Why, this is a classic political science question, why don't the poor soak the rich in a democracy when they outnorm, outnumber the rich? So there's like, these are, these are the reason I was making fun of your question is because these are actually questions that are hundreds of years old <laughs> that we've been grappling with a long time, at least in 1619, right? In this, in this context. Um, and so I don't pretend to have the entire answers. I think we have some um, directional sense of like what's required based on our history, but it's also important not to get trapped by history too, as we seek to innovate and, and imagine new strategies and new visions for how to not just win a progressive majority, but actually how to enforce the wins once we get them. 
you know, when I actually come on the show, you promised me to have the answers, by the way. So I'm quite disappointed. <laughs> um, but I, we'll make adjustments and I'll kind of have a caveat going forward, okay? But I, I think we mentioned the system is like an overarching, you could call it a connecting thread mm. amongst all peoples. Um, I would say the system, we can call it political economy, we can call mm -hmm. it capitalism, we can have different labels for it. But if you look at the question of how the economy is organized, how the economy interplays with other institutions, how power exists and doesn't exist to impact those things. That's kind of roughly the, the system itself. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, I think we don't look at that as being something that all of us face, meaning all people who, who live in this country. And it comes out in different ways. It's mm. both racialized, it's both in different regional in, in, um, impacts. But I remember reading some of the columns by Nick Kristoff, uh, I guess, in New York Times about mm. um, people he went to school with uh, up in, um, in, in Washington. And he talked about who was on the bus with me as a kid in school. And how for one family had like, like five boys and all of them were either dead or in jail. Mm. I said, oh, that's white folks. They're also dead in jail. That could be like a quote unquote black story, right? Mm. So what happens sometimes, mm. we ignore the overarching issue of the system and raise the question how to impact races differently, genders differently, region differently. And we start with the idea of a region or a race or a gender. And a starting point, mm -hmm. it can close off commonalities. I'm not saying that we have some automatic black, white, not be fight sort of thing at all. But I think somehow we need to talk about the problem, one, accurately, but also talk about in a way people can see themselves in the problem itself. Yes. And to me, that's part of the, the, the part of the process where we do build a progressive governing majority. And I think that's something thing that's super complicated, by the way, because I joke about the answers and you don't have them. I don't have them, right? No one has them. But this notion of, of naming the system, naming how it impacts groups both similarly and differently, are it's important frame to go through our, our conversations. Um, can I, so you just made me think of a couple of things. One is I do think it's important. I'm totally there with you on naming the system. And there's lots of concepts we have. We've, been, we've debated all the concepts, right? Is it class? Is it um, racial capitalism? Is it caste, right? We can have a debate about, but those are all tools, analytical tools to help us understand the system. Right. Um, and, the, and, and, but the analysis might be different than strategy. And so I just want to make sure we keep those two things potentially separate and not mistake analysis or strategy. Um, and then, but you, you, you actually raised something that I've been thinking a lot about because you know, I, I read a lot of history. I've been reading a lot about the civil war and reconstruction and just thinking about the numbers of, um, Americans who have died from COVID. Um, so we're over 200,000 right now. And I've just been struck by, um, it does feel to me similar in a sense, with one exception, to the Civil War. I think there were something like 700,000 Americans lost who died because of the Civil War or fighting the war. And the difference to me now is, um, you know, one of the big technologies at the time, I think the Civil War was one of the first wars ever in human history that be photographed. Yeah. And so um, the images of those dead bodies that were probably really gruesome, right, landed in people's doorsteps. Um, so that's just like one observation. But, but the deeper observation is um, <laughs> the racism of Southern Confederates and plantation owners was so deep that they didn't even think black folk could actually serve and fight. And so what you had was hundreds of thousands of poor white Southerners who died in the Civil War, fighting to keep other people unfree. And that just that's just been circling in my head and thinking about, well, is this a period when we're sort of in a soft Civil War in this weird way? Um, and the body count this time is from COVID-19 and the in incompetence and intransigence of the current administration to even care. Like I keep thinking like, oh, just like Southern plantation owners didn't care about poor white folks. Um, neither does Trump and his enablers. And it's like for white, poor white workers, it's like, yo, the white oligarchs have never cared about y'all either. <laughs> right? Like there is no, 
universe in which they have cared about you either, except for when it's been politically expedient for them to hold on to power. And so that, that to me seems like, um, like I do, I do firmly believe like black workers need to organize as black workers. Um, but I do think there is common ground at some point, right? In terms of if you use the category of worker, for instance, it's like, again, the system is screwing everybody. The system should be the best organizer. The system is the boss, <laughs> right? And then like, what's our strategy? Again, once you make that analytical point, then what's the strategy to organize? And I come down on, um, I'm going to borrow from Lonnie Guineer and Gerald Torres um, from their, I think, 2002 book, The Miner's Canary. And I'm a firm believer, and I think this is really applicable to black workers, because from where the traditions I come from, black workers are the miner's canary of both the democracy and the economy. If you want to know the health of the system of our democracy, if you want to know the health of the system of our economy or racial capitalism, just look at where black workers are. And that because the miner canary, and let me, let me finish that thought in terms of, um, for those that might not know, um, miners would take canaries into the coal mine. Um, because canaries have very tiny lungs. And so when there were toxic gases in the mine, in the system of the mine, um, canaries would get sick or die. Miners knew that there was danger and to get out. And so black workers have always been the miners canary in this country, notifying and alerting and demanding, right, that people pay attention to the deep system design flaws that are harmful and result in death and suffering, and then what to do about it, right? How do you how do you offer up alternative systems? And so when I think of, I, I often use the miner's canary as a device to help us think about power. And I think there's not just one miner's canary in America. There's lots of miner's canary, depending on where you look, right? Um, that's where gender comes in, right? If you look at, okay, well, where do women, um, what is the standing of women in the society, for particularly black women or queer folks? Or yes, workers are a miner's canary, right? And it, it falls a, along different racialized dimensions, but there are lots of miner's canaries. And what would it mean for all the canaries to unite to overthrow the system? And so that's, that's, that's how I come at a lot of these questions that you're asking me that I cannot answer. It's at least the process of my thinking. So the slogan is, canaries of the world unite. You have nothing to lose but your board cages. <laughs> After talking about the miners' canary metaphor as a way of illustrating how the fate of one group can foreshadow the fate of an entire population, and the idea that black workers are one of many canaries in the mine, we shifted gears to discuss the relationship of black workers to black freedom and the use of black workers as a descriptive concept, an analytical concept, and an organizing concept. Let's change the conversation for a second and pivot and talk about Black workers and the idea of Black freedom. When you and I were texting about you coming on the show, and I talked about this whole idea of discussing Black workers not only as a descriptive category, mm -hmm. but also as, a, as an analytical one, an organizing one. So descriptive for me, it means that simply most Black folks work, boom, describing Black folks, Black workers. Analytically, it means to say, well, Black workers have a particular way they relate to capital and business in the economy. That's the analytical point that's important mm -hmm. to raise. And organizing meaning, well, how do we center or organize on black workers per se, not other elves of the black community? Mm -hmm. And you said, that sounds cool, Steve. That sounds interesting. But it's not mutually exclusive. Okay. What do you mean by that? <laughs> now, you said it, not me. Now, this is oh. your words. Yeah, There's many, 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 many texts to go. By the way, so I understand. Okay. Yeah, and so, so say that. So descriptive. You said descriptive, analytical, and organizing. Anal analytical and organizing. Yeah, I don't think those are mutually exclusive. Actually, yeah. I think it's kind of you know I I go back to um, you know Chicago, our hometown is is one of the birthplaces of modern improvisational theater, and um, I often think about improv principles of of yes and it's like. Yeah, black workers is a very important description of um, a group of folks that actually defines who is free and who is unfree in this country. It is analytically important to understand the dynamics of racial capitalism and um, the contradictions of racial capitalism. And then, yes, it's an organizing tool in the sense that um, 
yes, we generally have always organized around various political identities that compel people to action. And identities are always politically constructed, right? And we're not, we don't, they, we, you know, we're born a certain way, but we, but we had to invent language to create a description of uh, sex or race, <laughs> right? Um, so, so identities are always politically constructed. And yes, um, black workers as a political identity to organize and mobilize and challenge power is super important. So I actually see all of these things, um, the descriptive term, the analytical term, and then the organizing term, all are necessary, I think, to have in our toolkit for advancing freedom, frankly, and liberation. So um, now one other thing I wanted to raise, though, that you that you make me think of, because I think from at least one of the traditions that we both come from, um, we do think a lot about contradictions. And so I, I have been thinking about our text conversation in the sense of, yes, if we focus on black workers and we focus on black poor and working class folks, um, at least in the history of this country, there have always been interesting mixed class spaces in black communities because of segregation. So it made me think about churches, made me think about barbershops and beauty salons. Hey, it made me think about funeral homes. Um, and I was trying to think about, well, what is the role of black middle, the black middle class and um, black wealthy folks in the liberation of black workers? And um, it reminded me of the Harold Washington campaign in 82 and 83, because one of the necessary ingredients, yes, there had to be mobilization of black poor and working class folks across the city. It also took resources from several black owned businesses to actually throw down. And it's always an interesting question. You know, after every election cycle, we always ask, well, what, why does the white working class vote against their interests? What's, what's wrong with, you know, it's always like, what's wrong with them? And, and no one ever asked the other question, like, well, why do black rich people vote against their interest? <laughs> right? Why do black middle-class and upper middle-class people vote against their class interests? Like, let's, let, let's understand that, right? Because it's about linked fate that our, our, our friend Michael Dawson would write about. And this notion of a broader collective sense of liberation, where you actually substitute your own individual self-interest for the collective well-being of the community. And so that's a different way in. Like I'm I'm actually more like very interested in that question of um, and it was only a brief moment in time, as you well remember, of this progressive governing majority and coalition, hard fought in the mid-80s in Chicago, in the in the guys of this charismatic black leader and named Harold Washington. There was like a very interesting coalition put together um, within the black community, within the black community, and then across, right, brown folk, white liberals, lakefront liberals, we used to call them. So anyway, I, that that doesn't totally answer your question, but that's at least, um, to, to wrap it in a bow, yes, we need the description, we need the analysis, and we need the organizing strategies. They're all necessary. They might not all be the same thing, by the way, right? It's one thing to understand the world and your place in it. It's another thing to have a strategy to change it. Now, I think about those three kind of concepts that not to kind of hold on to too tightly, but I think the reason I keep raising the issue of, of the analytical and organizing piece mm. Is oftentimes in that lack sometimes in our actual analysis. So I mm -hmm. think about kind of the little bubbling discussion over black votes for Trump, how it increased. <laughs> right. And and clearly and overall it wasn't a big thing, to be honest. It's not like like 80% of black folks voted for Trump at all, right? But what's exactly. a, a, a should, should at some level, but equally important, oftentimes the first instinct is the gender lens. Yes. That black women stayed tall and black men kind of defected. And once again, ignoring the, the numbers at play, no one raised the question of those black folks who voted for Trump, where do they sit in mm. the political economy? Mm. Are they people who might have a high proportion of unemployment? Might the people, people have been disproportionately impacted by things of the Obama years? So we, we don't talk about how folks fit into the larger system beyond certain kind of ready frames, in this case, yes. the gender frame. I think the importance of trying to, to deeper understanding the problem allows us to understand things better, man. It simply does. So it's, it's a real question. I think we got to bring to the to the table. Um, yeah, but but well, like but for instance, going. like just to go to my point of like, I think there's lots of miners canaries. So like, I do think like what what would it mean if we centered not just black workers, but let's talk about black women workers for a minute. Right. And think about, you know, this better than anybody in the country. Well, what are the industries and types of work that black women are disproportionately 
concentrated in. And what comes to mind for me is care work. Right? Black women are always domestic workers. And so if you start there, right, as one of one part of an analysis of like this particular miners canary in our democracy, then you you come to understand, oh, right, care work is devalued in this country because it's precisely because it's gendered, because precisely because it's considered women's work. And actually for most of this history, it was considered black women's work. So care work has been devalued, devalued over time. And then, you know, you add in, well, like most women, black women have had a double shift um, to use the, the famous uh, Arlie Hochschild's famous notion, right? So you work at home, you work first shift at home, you come home, double shift, second shift, right? Of the reproductive labor necessary um, in terms of raising children and taking care of, say, elderly parents and family members. So that's just like one, again, I think there's multiple minors canaries, but when you, it's just a different way into the conversations about intersectionality and race and class and gender and like, okay, well, let's actually do that work and then like surface the contradictions too, right? And in the conundrums that come out of that analysis. This is really a fun conversation, Dory, and I'm really enjoying this. Um, I joke and tell people that um, my father and his best friend, they used to talk and argue half the night. <laughs> but Dory, it's important. Then they switch sides. Keep yeah, on rolling. Totally. Okay. Totally. And so I, I really enjoyed this kind of this this interaction. What I thought about, hadn't thought about it before. See, see, you raised the issue of centering a story on certain groups and building out the Myers Canary analogy. What I hadn't thought about is a different approach where we examine an issue mm. and bring different views to the issue. Mm. So I raised the question of, of mm -hmm. black voting behavior this last election. Mm -hmm. You look at it, then you see why it occurred through gender. Mm -hmm. class, those sort of things. Mm -hmm. Well, the question of, of police murders, mm -hmm. I would say that they aren't killing random black folks. That there's mm -hmm. an issue of, of, of class and gender at some levels, how the police are murdering people. So to me, the issue is how do you yes. take an issue, yes. police brutality, housing, healthcare, and then say, how do those other constant impact the, the results? Um, and that takes me to the last thing mm. I want to talk about, because I know you can't talk forever. You got to be a daddy, I guess, or whatever. <laughs> okay. Um, these are these are kind of rough times. Mm. What music keeps you moving, brings you hope, man? It depends on what week you ask me. So, and it, it like I have a range of musical tastes. Look, I listen, I love hearing you and Fletcher talk about uh, a jazz. <laughs> and I'm a, I'm a jazz head, but but so here's what I, what's on my playlist for this week actually. Um, yeah, it is "Sympathy for the Devil" by the Rolling Stones. Wow. It yeah. is "Peace Frog" from the Doors. It is, I think it's the Doors. Well, what's that? Peace Frog. Peace Frog. Okay, okay, that's cool. Okay. Um, it is "Electric Relaxation" from a Tribe Called Quest. And then the other song that's on my playlist this week is actually um, Kanye West and Jay-Z from Watch the Throne, and it's um, Murder to Excellence. I've been really thinking about that song a lot because it, it, it is a good cultural example of the contradictions in Black communities. Um, and sort of whether it's um, you know living in segregated Black communities where you're likely to get killed by the police or the excesses of, frankly, of Black capitalists and Black wealth. There's just a lot in that song if you listen to it in different ways. So anyway, that's my playlist for the week. It's a mix <laughs> of different artists. You know, in some ways, Jay-Z and Kanye themselves capture the, the contradictions of the Black community. That's not another discussion. I man, what's you reading, man? What books you reading or articles, whatever else? Oh, I mean, I... <laughs> so I'm a voracious reader, and I'm always reading multiple things at the same time. So I can tell you um, right here on my desk, so... I'm I'm just finished cast finally by Isabel okay. Wilkerson, but you know I'm a I, I love history, so I I also have on my desk how the South won the Civil War by Heather Cox Richardson, yeah. um, and then I'm pairing that with another book um, by someone who I don't know, Richard Johnson. It's called The End of the Second Reconstruction. Um, actually, a very interesting British political scientist I think who has a, a set of outside eyes. Um, on us and those, so I've been reading those three books, and they're great to go back to our to to the theme of the show. They're great at description. They're great at analysis. They are not great at organizing a strategy. Like they leave you just helpless when you finish reading them. So the other book I'm reading is this book by um, our friend Alicia Garza, 
the purpose of power because that is like the strategy book. It's like, okay, given all this analysis, now what do we do? <laughs> How do we build power to win? Um, and then uh, two other quick ones that I'm, I told you I read, I'm reading a lot of books. Um, I do have this book on my desk called Crib Sheet by Emily Oster. This is all about, um, it's a data-driven guide to better, more relaxed parenting from birth to preschool. <laughs> Good luck with that uh, one, okay. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, uh, let me just share, because we're, we're, we're like family. So my uncle just passed away a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I'm and, so sorry, man. Um, thank you. And he, you know, he grew up 76 in Indiana as well. He was a nurse at Cook County Hospital for yeah. 40 years in the burn unit, in fact. And a couple of years ago, I was a big Stutz Turkle fan when I was growing up. I used to love reading his oral histories. And one of his protégés wrote this book called Hospital, um, which was a, a study of Cook County hospital workers. And my uncle is in this book. Oh, There's cool. an interview with him. And so I've been just rereading his interview um, these last couple of weeks uh, upon his passing to remind me of what a... a flavorful <laughs> and fascinating person he was and the life he lived, you know, over 80 years on this planet being a black man from the South side of Chicago. So that's what I'm reading. I'm reading a whole bunch of, a whole bunch of stuff all at the same time. That's good. Dorian, thanks so much. It's been a great conversation. We could have gone on longer and longer and longer, but thanks a lot, man. I appreciate it. Um, but thank you, Dr. Pitts. Um, I will return the favor very soon and would love to have you on my own podcast. And also feel free to invite me back. We got a lot more to talk about and argue about. <laughs> Sounds good. Enjoy the first part of your 18-year tour of duty as parent. Uh, <laughs> I heard okay. it's 40 years, actually. Um, it never... It's been changing. That's, that's part of the new world now. Right. <laughs> Because it's changed. Take care, man. Okay, I'll talk to you. Thanks so much, Stephen. That was a fun conversation, and I hope you enjoyed it. Hopefully, we can bring Dorian back to deepen this discussion on the role of Black workers in the quest for Black freedom. I think that is one important missing element in our movement to ensure that Black lives really matter. I am really excited about our next episode. We will talk with Ruth Wilson Gilmore. Ruthie is a professor of geography and the director of the Center for Place, Culture, and Politics at the City University of New York. She is also one of the world's leading prison abolitionists. I look forward to talking with her about the relationship between Black workers and the prison abolition movement. So once again, thanks for joining me this week. And we need your help as you build the Black Work Talk community. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you find your podcast and go to Patreon to become a sustainer. Until the next episode, stay safe and be well.